Chapter 34 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Glover. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. By Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 34. The Seventeenth Century. The 17th century was different in many ways from the 16th. Things were settling down. Religious questions were still very important, but other things became still more so. Yet one more great war of religion was fought in the first half of the 17th century. It was the great struggle between the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation in Germany. It began in 1618 and ended in 1648 and is always called the Thirty Years' War. The emperor at the time was Ferdinand of Styria, who had been a pupil of the Jesuits, and was as eager a Catholic as Philip of Spain had been. He was anxious to make as many of the German states as possible Catholic again. The little Protestant kingdom of Bohemia, generally elected as its king, the prince who was going to be the emperor, and it elected Ferdinand in this way. But when the Bohemians saw that Ferdinand was going to be hard on the Protestants, they said they would not have him for their king, and chose instead Frederick, the Elector Palatine, the ruler of one of the German states called the Palatinate. Frederick had married the daughter of James I of England, who had become king of England when Elizabeth died in 1603. James was the son of Mary Queen of Scots, but had been brought up as a Protestant. Frederick naturally thought that James would help him, but James always took a long time to make up his mind about anything. He was a clever man in some ways, and proud of his learning, but he never really understood other men. He was always so long in making up his mind how to act towards other countries that people despised and laughed at him. Someone said that he was the wisest fool in Christendom, he was the only one of the Stuarts who was not good-looking. His curious loose limbs and weak face gave a good idea of his character. Frederick was driven from Bohemia, and even from his own Palatinate, before James had made up his mind to help him. And when he did send help, it was of little use. James was full of an idea that countries should not fight with each other about religion and he was anxious to show how tolerant he was by marrying his son to a Spanish princess. Then he thought that Spain would help him against the Catholic emperor, but all this was nonsense. The Spanish king would never marry his daughter to a Protestant prince, though he did not say so immediately to James. Meanwhile, the struggle between Ferdinand and Frederick had become a fight between the emperor and the Protestant princes of the empire. It was the last great war of religion, and one of the most terrible that have ever been. For thirty years the Germans suffered in the most terrible way, and at the end of the war, half of all the people had been killed. A great soldier called Wallenstein was the chief general on the emperor's side. He did not really care very much about religion, but he wanted to give the emperor real power over all Germany and this frightened the Protestant princes very much, for till this time they had been like little kings in their own states. Wallenstein's soldiers loved him and were proud of him, 
He won many victories, and the Protestants were almost in despair when the great Protestant king of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, crossed with an army into Germany to help the Protestants. The king of Sweden was afraid that if the emperor got real power over the northern states of Germany, as far as the Baltic, he would then threaten Sweden. Gustavus Adolphus was a very earnest Protestant too. When he landed in Germany, the Protestants crowded to follow him. At first, he was victorious everywhere. He encouraged his men by telling them that a good Christian could never be a bad soldier. At first, he did not fight against Wallenstein, but against another general named Tilly. But at last, he met Wallenstein at the Great Battle of Lutzen. Even here, the Swedes were really victorious. But towards the end of the battle, a thick fog covered the armies. And in the darkness, Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North, was killed. He had said goodbye to his people before he left Sweden, holding his little daughter Christina, who was only three years old, in his arms. She was now Queen of Sweden, but when she grew up she became a Catholic and so gave up her crown. She lived most of her time in Italy and was one of the cleverest women of her time. In a little over a year after the Battle of Lutzen, Wallenstein was murdered. He had always wanted to have things very much his own way, and the emperor was afraid that he might even turn against him, and as the general could make the soldiers do anything he wished, this would have been very dangerous. So Wallenstein was declared a traitor, and soon after, some men, hoping to please the emperor, for whom he had done so much, murdered him. After this, the war went on for many years. The French, under the great Cardinal Richelieu, helped the Protestants, although, of course, France was a Catholic country. He did this to keep Germany weak, for in the 17th century there were only a few statesmen, like Gustavus Adolphus, who were really fighting for religion. The others made it an excuse to bring about the things that they wanted. At last, when peace was made by the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, things were not altered very much. The northern states remained Protestant, and the southern states Catholic. The son of the elector Frederick, who was now dead, got half of his Palatinate back, but Bohemia remained to the emperor. After this, the emperor had less power than ever in the empire. He became, really, the ruler of Austria, with Hungary and Bohemia, the countries which still belonged to the emperor of Austria. The little states of the north and west of Germany remained separate, until 200 years later, the ruler of one of them, Prussia, which had grown stronger and stronger, won the rule of the others, and so began the German Empire of today. In the 17th century, all the rulers in the countries of Europe were really absolute. That is to say, neither the people nor the nobles had any power, but had to do just what the kings ordered. In many countries in the Middle Ages, there had been the beginning of parliaments, in which the people had power to help in the government of their country. But only in England had this power grown. In England, too, Parliament had lost much of its power under the absolute rule of the Tudor kings. Still, Parliaments did meet, and even the Tudor kings pretended at least to take the advice of Parliament, though really the Parliaments passed any laws which the king ordered them to. But, towards the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, 
the Parliament several times sent very plain messages to the Queen. They complained of the way in which she gave some of her favorites monopolies, that is, the right to trade in certain things. When a monopoly was granted, no other person could sell that thing, and the favorite could charge almost any price he liked. This was very hard on the people, but when Parliament complained, Elizabeth was wise enough to give way. But when James I came to the throne, troubles began between the king and Parliament. And when his son Charles I became king, a real struggle began, which ended in the Great Civil War. The Great Civil War in England. Charles I became king of England in the year 1625. He was a handsome man and very good and religious. He married a Catholic princess, Henrietta Maria of France, and he always loved her and his children very much. Charles was almost a saint in some ways, but he was not a wise king. He could never understand that Parliament had a right to help in the government of the country. He saw how other kings ruled absolutely, and he could not understand why the English king should not do the same. Parliament first really began to quarrel with the king about religion. Archbishop Laud of Canterbury was a great friend of Charles. He wanted to make the English church very much more like the Catholic church that it had grown to be. He was fond of ceremonies, and he had the communion table railed off like an altar at the east end of the churches. He said that the sign of the cross should be used for baptizing babies. The Puritans in the church hated these things, which seemed to them popish. There were many Puritan gentlemen in the House of Commons, and they complained about these things in an act called the Petition of Right. Charles had to give his consent to the petition, but he soon sent the Parliament away, and for eleven years did without. But the king required money. Generally he had got it through grants made by the Parliament, but now he had to get it in some other ways. He began to gather taxes which had not been used for hundreds of years, especially one called ship money, but even then he could not get enough. The Scots too rose in rebellion because Archbishop Laud had tried to force them to have a new prayer book, which was very like the English prayer book read in their churches. Scotland was now joined to England, but had a separate parliament. The Scots were much more Protestant than the English, and they hated the new prayer book. On the first Sunday it was to be read in the churches, a servant woman called Jenny Geddes threw a stool at the head of the preacher in St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh, and the people had to be turned out before the service could be read. When the Scots rebelled and an army marched into England, Charles had not enough money to fight them, and in the end, he had to give way about the prayer book. He had to call Parliament again, and in 1640, the Long Parliament met. It was so called because it did not really come to an end for twenty years though the friends of the king left it, and it suffered many other changes. The Puritans were now very angry against the king, and tried to take all power out of his hands. They tried, too, to get rid of bishops altogether from the English church, and make it much more like the Calvinistic churches of Scotland or Geneva. This made many gentlemen leave the parliament and take the king's part. The Earl of Strafford, Charles's friend and chief servant had his head cut off, Archbishop Laud was put in prison, and in the end, his head was cut off too. 
At last, in 1642, the Great Civil War began. Nearly all the great lords were on the side of the king, though some fought against him. Charles had splendid horse soldiers to fight for him under his brave nephew, Prince Rupert. At first, the two sides were equal, but later Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan gentleman, got together a splendid army of foot soldiers. He drilled them splendidly and would have no drinking or swearing. They had to be what he called godly men. They came to be called Cromwell's Ironsides. In the end, Cromwell won. The king was taken prisoner and had his head cut off in front of the people at Whitehall. It was chiefly Cromwell who was determined that the man Charles Stuart, as he called him, must be got rid of in this way. Many people looked on Charles as a martyr, and he died very nobly and bravely, after saying goodbye to some of his children. On the morning he was to be executed, he put on an extra shirt, saying with a smile that he did not wish to tremble with the cold, for fear his enemies might think that he was shaking with fear. His eldest son, Charles, escaped to France after many adventures, and for eleven years, Cromwell and the Parliament tried to govern England. Cromwell tried to set up a republic, but he could never get a parliament to suit him, and all the time, he was really ruling like an absolute king. There were no more bishops, and the Puritans had things all their own way. Cromwell was a very earnest Protestant. He thought all the time that he was doing God's work. He had many wise plans for the government of England, but many of the people felt that he was really more of a tyrant than Charles I had been. When he died, his son was made Lord Protector, but England was tired of the new ways, and a message was sent to Prince Charles asking him to come back and govern the country. There was great rejoicing when King Charles II rode into London on the 29th May 1660. The bishops were brought back, and there began a very merry time in the history of England. After the Restoration, as the return of Charles was called, the Puritans had a very hard time. Although Charles the Merry Monarch had promised to give them liberty of conscience, he could not have been kind to them, even if he had wished. For the new parliaments, full of love for the king and angry at the memory of the sorrows of his father, were determined to have their revenge. The bodies of Cromwell and two of his friends were taken from their graves in Westminster Abbey and hanged on the scaffold. They were buried again, but of course not in the Abbey. Charles II was always very careful not to interfere with the rights of Parliament, and so England was the one country whose government left some power to the people. Later, when the peoples of other countries rose up and fought for power, they imitated the English government, so that our Parliament is often called the Mother of Parliaments. The Puritans could no longer preach or teach or meet together for prayers or services. Those who did so were thrown into prison. One of the most remarkable men who was put into prison at this time was John Bunyan, the son of a Bedford tinker. He was a very good and religious young man, but he tortured himself over his sins, the worst of which were dancing on the village green or ringing the church bells. To the Puritans, Nearly every amusement was a sin, and Bunyan thought himself very wicked because he loved these things. But in the end, he gave them up and became a preacher. He was put in prison after the Restoration, and in Bedford Jail, 
He wrote the wonderful book called The Pilgrim's Progress, which tells the story of how a man named Christian traveled to the celestial city and all he suffered on the way. But it is really the story of any soul which is struggling to get rid of sin and find peace. John Bunyan was not an educated man, but he wrote simple and beautiful English, and his book is still read by everyone today. John Bunyan was the great Puritan prose writer, but the Puritans had their great poet too. This was the blind poet John Milton, whose greatest work was a wonderful long poem called Paradise Lost. But many Puritans fled overseas, to a land where some who believed as they did had already made their homes. It will be interesting to hear something of their story. End of chapter 34